Turn your copy of God's Word to Titus chapter 3. There's a Bible provided for you in the pew, and our text is found on page 1859 in the Bible uh, found in the pew. A weary world rejoices. That comes from a line in the carol, O Holy Night. We'll be talking more about that, but I want to talk to you about why Advent is so important, why it was instituted by the early church, and why it's instructive for us as well as for the world. Uh, Advent was one of the first Christian festivals around the 3rd, 4th century. The Christian church, as they moved away from Jerusalem and no longer participated in the Jewish festivals, began to pattern Christian festivals and pilgrimage, much like what they saw in the Old Testament. They also moved into pagan areas or secular, as we say now, areas of the world that had no spiritual heritage or background or understanding that the Jewish believers uh, understood that Christianity is a narrative, it is a story, and it is a pilgrimage. And they put together these festivals to not only teach believers that you're a part of this grand, great story, No matter what your moment in time is, no matter what struggles you're facing, there's a story that you've been swept up in. And that story is the story of Advent. And it's the story of Lent, which is the coming of the Savior, and then it is the dying and the resurrection of the Savior. And we're told that this story continues now that we as believers are called up in the story to align our lives with this new story. And so as we move into this Advent time, I would ask each of us to think of this as a spiritual journey of our own, to ask the question, is our life aligned with the story of God's redemptive salvation? And then also, how can that bring us what the early church celebrated? Think about this. They celebrated that Advent brings hope. Advent brings peace. Advent brings love. Advent brings joy when the Christ comes into this broken world, not only to demonstrate for us that there's a path to heaven, but to save us and take us to heaven. Christianity enters this world of brokenness and this world of weariness, and it has the audacity to make the claim that followers of Jesus Christ are to be marked by hope, peace, love, and joy. It's remarkable to think about that the followers of Jesus are to carry on inwardly with the story that's been given to us outwardly. And Advent is a proposition, if you will. It's this declaration of an objective reality that's to align our subjective experience. Think about those descriptions. Those are feeling descriptions. Those are aspirational desires. We're to be hoping, not moping or simply coping. Well, how do we live that way? Our text today speaks of Advent hope, Paul's letter to Titus in Titus chapter 3. 
Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's pray together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us a story that changes our heart and our inward trajectory, but it gives us outward hope no matter what we're facing in our circumstances, circumstances or situations. It also gives us this sense, Father, that you will bring us to our eternal home. Give us that assurance. If there's anyone today that doesn't know that assurance, may today be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Think back with me to that first Christmas. Think of Israel's hopelessness. Israel, their hope had been waning. It had been 400 years since they'd heard a message of the Messiah will come and rescue. They were occupied by an enemy. They'd been carried off into captivity. For the most part, hope was not just weak. Hope was not just sick. Hope was dead. And when hope dies, we all die. And our desire to thrive and to live dies when we lose hope. Now think of this. Into that deadness, God speaks. Into that deadness, God acts. And his answer to the question, is it safe to hope again? His answer is the incarnation. It's the coming of the Son of God into this broken world to not only offer us hope, but to heal us. So Paul's text here speaks of the Advent. We'll see that word used when we understand the word appear this morning. But it reminds us that in the gospel, we have to remind ourselves, we cannot find hope in ourselves. Hope is always found outside of ourselves. The second thing we see is that when hope comes, it comes unexpectedly, and it comes and appears to transform our lives. And then thirdly, we'll see how that hope is a lasting hope. It will outlast our fears, our hurts, even our failures, and it will outlast even death itself. So first, hope comes, but it's not a hope that we find in ourselves. Advent hope is alien in the sense that it comes from outside of us. 
We don't believe in a therapeutic gospel that says somehow we're going to feel ourselves into salvation. We're going to understand our inward confusion and somehow we're going to heal the problems that were brought to us by our families of origin. That's not salvation according to the gospel. Salvation according to the gospel is an outward or alien hope that finds us but not in ourselves. Notice verse 1, Paul says, remind them, Titus. This is a pastoral epistle from Paul to Titus who's been left at Crete. And he's the first part of the epistle speaking of life in the church. And then he begins to talk about life in relationships in the family. And now he's talking about life in the world. And he says, remind God's people of their limits, that their hope is not found in themselves. Now, you read verse 1, you might not see that as clearly, but think of what Paul is saying of the implications. He is saying that you are to do good in an evil world, but not because you are good. You're to do good in the evil world because you appear as lights. You're a goodness point of light in an evil world. Earlier in Titus, we're told that that culture was a pagan culture where they celebrated things like lying and greed and gluttony, and that was glorified in their culture. Sounds a lot like our culture in the West today, doesn't it? And Paul says, we appear and we are to reflect a different character. Hope and integrity, peaceableness and humility. Paul says, remind them that they are to do good, to be lights, but not that they are good. Look at verse 3, he speaks of our origin. We were like those outside of Christ, and then the light found us. The light came to us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves and enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another's. Paul is saying here to Titus, instruct them that you're called to live as light, but that light is not in yourself. It's a light that came to you. And that the temptation for you is to reflect the culture's idols. You see, that's really your only choice to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ or to be enslaved by the idolatry of your culture. Look at this language here. Slave to your passions, foolish, disobedient, led astray, passing your days full of malice and envy. Theologians call this the depravity of the soul. Now, Depravity doesn't mean that we're as corrupt as we could be, but depravity means that everything about us has been touched or tainted with sin and with evil. And therefore, we make evil glorious, and we look at good and glory as something that we despise. Children, I'll give you this analogy as you're listening. Think about your life before, or humanity's life before the fall, is like a glass heart. And that glass heart was filled with light, and it was pure. And that glass heart connected you with God's heart. Not only were you to reflect hope and peace and love and joy, but you had connection with God. You belonged to God, and He walked with you. But man rebelled. 
when man turned in his rebellion from God, that glass heart was broken and it was marred, it was dark. It was to be your compass. That heart now was to guide you back to God, but now it was a, it was a darkened heart. It was a depraved heart. It only leaves, leads you to activities that will enslave you, not free you. And that's our nature, children. We are depraved, but it also says our desires are disordered. You can't trust your impulses, children. You can't trust your initiation. You can't trust your motives. You can't trust your intuition. Why is this? Because inwardly, we have chosen darkness over light. Verse 3 says, at one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Paul's telling Titus to remind the believers, you were tempted to misplace your hope into idols, to seek a kind of freedom that you think will be pleasurable. All it will do will enslave you. Now, the modern world is caught up in this longing for freedom. The modern world finds freedom as lack of accountability, lack of morality, the permission to do whatever you want when you want to do it. But I want you to know the Bible says that will not give you freedom. That will give you enslavement. What we see in this text is freedom is the power and desire to do what is good, to live this light that we're talking about. But today, in the church, the biblical literacy is so confusing, and we think that the gospel is about our happiness, and it's about our own pleasures. Now, I don't know if this is myth or true, but I did read that once Elvis Presley entered an Elvis Presley impersonator contest. Elvis Presley came from the Memphis area and Lil Thompson's Steakhouse was a place that he would go and play and get a steak when he was just a poor man. But he built a friendship with Lil Thompson. And over time, Lil Thompson would host these Elvis Presley impersonation uh, evenings. And one night, Elvis was in town after he'd already made fame and fortune. And Lil Thompson said, what if you come out at the end? and you sing a song. Can you imagine how it would just light the room up? So he said, I'll, I'll sing Love Me Tender. And he waited in the shadows and all the other contestants performed. And then he came out and he was the last one. And Elvis Presley sang Love Me Tender. And when he finished, they gave him polite applause and voted him third in the Elvis <laughs> Presley impersonation contest. Now, I don't know if it's that hard to distinguish between Elvis and the impersonator, but I want you to know, Christian, it's hard to distinguish between idols and the truth. And Satan's goal is to cause you to believe a lie. Now, what's the lie that Satan wants you to believe? Number one, God is all wise. And two, he wants you to believe that God is not loving. If he can cause you to believe that lie... And you're free to live any way you want rather than to live the way God's called you. This text tells us that's not freedom. It's slavery. And when you break the law of God, you do not break God's law. You are broken by breaking God's law. If uh, 
I went to New York City and went to the top of the Empire State Building, 1,450 feet up. And I said that I have declared that I don't believe in the law of gravity. In fact, I want to prove to everyone that I want to break the law of gravity. And if I was bold enough to declare it, then people would think that I probably was crazy. But if bold enough to jump off the Empire State Building and tumble 9.8 meters per second per second to the ground, I would not have broken the law of gravity. The law of gravity would have broken me because you don't break God's law. It's enslavement and it leads to a kind of brokenness or repair that can only be put back together in the gospel. But that's what we see here. What hope do we have? Verse 4 tells us that there is hope pair in the gospel. And that hope is that God has given us a rescue for a reason. God has given us a rescue for a reason. Look at verse 4. It says that, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that salvation is an appearance. Now that word appearance is very important in the Advent story. If you go back and read Luke 1 and 2, you read Matthew, what you'll see is this word appear is very important. In the Advent accounts we're told that the angel appeared to Mary. We're told that angels appeared to the shepherds. We're told that angels appeared to Zechariah. We're told that the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This Greek word is epiphonia, which we get the word epiphany. And that word is a powerful word. It speaks of suddenness. It speaks of breaking in in a powerful, unexpected way. It speaks of visibility, making seen what had not earlier been seen. It speaks of intervention. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that this word was often used to describe a military intervention where might has been demonstrated to help those who are in need. We're told here that the grace of God has appeared. That's the sign that salvation is brought or light comes to those who walk in darkness. Now, I mentioned, O Holy Night, that carol during the course of Advent will hear that song and we'll sing it together. But Playside Chapeau, he actually wrote a poem and it was called Midnight Christians. And when you read the poem, he'd been reading Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he'd been reading about this darkness that was on the people of God. Dark, dark night with no hope. And then listen to his words. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. I see the signs of the dear Savior's birth. Listen to this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices 
And yonder waits a new and glorious morn fall on your knees. You see, hope has appeared. Hope has appeared in our mess. Hope has appeared in our hurts. Hope has appeared in our confusion. Hope is right here. That's what the rescue is all about. What's the reason for the rescue? We're told it's not because we've been good enough. Not because we could earn God's favor. But it says two words. The ESV uses the words goodness and loving kindness. The NIV says kindness and love. But listen to the definition of these words. It says the goodness of God. This is his warm-hearted consideration for those he loves. Do you think of God that way in your life? God has warm-hearted considerations for those that belong to him. And then loving kindness. This is the compassion that's motivated to alleviate the suffering of another. Think about that. Do you believe that God has loving kindness for you? The quality of compassion motivated to alleviate the suffering of those that belong to him. It's really reflective of Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 when Jesus talks about God's heart and his heart. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For what? I am gentle and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy. My load is light. You see, the reason that we have been saved is not because of our goodness, but because of God's warm-hearted consideration and his compassion to alleviate suffering in our lives. I'll just ask you this morning, do you believe that? That's what it means That's what it means that the light has come and transformed your heart, is that you understand that though you do not deserve life, you deserve death, Jesus came and lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve, and there was an exchange. By faith, you take and trust his life, and your penalty is paid by him. Now, I'll tell you a story about my mother. I did send her a text this morning to tell her I'm going to talk about her. And so uh, they're usually listening now that we broadcast. And I, I said, I think I get this story right. But my mother did something foolish when she was in college. She went to the beach with some sorority girls. And several got into an inner tube their own inner tubes, and they floated out into the ocean there in Panama City Beach. Now, my mother didn't tell her friends that she didn't know how to swim. Her father had died uh, when she was a very young child in a boating accident, and their family was very fearful of the water, but she went out into the water because she wanted to have fun with her friends. Well, it wasn't too long as they floated and as that tide took her further and further out that they realized that they were so far out that no one could hear them when they would scream. And they realized that no one could see them waving for attention. And she was horrified. And she recognized that she had been foolish. She had no hope. And then next to her inner two, a man appeared. Maybe he'd swam out there. She didn't know, but he said, I will take you in. 
And he grabbed her inner tube and he grabbed her friend's inner tube and he dragged them and swam and took them back into the shore. Her friends were there. They were so overwhelmed. They were tears. And they were so relieved. They began to care for them and give them towels. She turned around to thank this man. He was nowhere to be found. She asked those around, do you know who this man was? No one knew. I think of him often. I often want to thank him uh, or thank that angel that was there. But that's what salvation is. Salvation is an appearance. God comes to you and God says, I want you to know my love. In the early service, one of our members stopped me and said, you know, I want to tell you a Thanksgiving story. I was with my brother, and he said, I think my brother would be the person I would say is the last likely person to profess faith in Christ. We were out playing golf, and I noticed that his language was a little different, and I noticed that he wasn't drinking like he normally was. On about the 10th hole, he said, I've got something to tell you. God's changed my life. He said, I was floored. And he said, I wanted to hear the story. And he began to hear how God had appeared. And he'd appeared and saved him. That's the salvation that changes us. This text describes that kind of transformation. It says two things. It'll change us in our being. And it'll change us in our lifestyles. You notice in verse 5 it says that he saved us. Not because of deeds that we had done, but by the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit being justified. That's a change in your status. It says that we become heirs of God. But it also says it's a change in our lifestyle. It says that now we have the hope of eternal life. It's a powerful phrase there that now the hope of eternal life resides with us. This doesn't mean that we are believing that hope is waiting for us in the future. Eternal life, according to the Bible, starts when you are converted. And hope has come from the future, and hope will take us to our eternal home. That's the assurance that we have. If you have the hope of eternal life, you have everything you need to live not as coping or not as moping in this life, but to live as those who are hoping. You see, eternal life is an objective reality based on what Christ has done for you, but it provides a subjective experience. It changes you from the inside out. Your being, your status has changed, but also your becoming, your lifestyle has changed. Your whole orbit is now centered around this light that is in your heart. Think about 1 Peter 3.15. Peter's describing to the early church there just how transformational the gospel is in our lives. He says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. Think about that. Peter says that people are going to look at your life and you're going to be hopeful when they're in despair. And you're going to have joy when they have only sadness. And they're going to see your circumstances. And they're going to ask you, what makes you different? This member told me that's what happened with his brother. He said, I looked around at all my family and all my friends. And the people that were living for Christ, their circumstances were not perfect. But they had a sense of resilience. They had a sense of hopefulness. The people that were outside of Christ, they were miserable. And every time I was with them, I was miserable. 
You see, the hope that is within us begins to change us. It's an objective reality that changes our subjective experience. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this. This is not the greatest illustration, but these things are so hard to understand, and I do want to try to picture it for you. But back in high school, I went to a high school in Birmingham, Alabama. I guess that's Birmingham, not Birmingham. And uh, we were a football powerhouse, multiple state championships, and the guys from the class before me, 23 of those seniors signed college scholarships, nine with SEC schools. So we were a powerhouse. But we had a principal that arrived, and he hired a new basketball coach, and he wanted to be equally as strong in basketball as he was in football. And so that principal began to work with the freshman class. I was in that freshman class team and taught us how to win. And then he worked with us in the sophomore class. He would played for Bobby Knight, and he had these strategies in terms of how to win. Others transferred in, and by our junior year, he was ready for us to take on the top flight schools in our city. But he scheduled Leeds High School early in the season. Now, for most of us, that was intimidating because everyone knew that Charles Barkley played for Leeds High School. But he said, we're going to win this game. We're going to send a message to the whole city and to ourselves that we can compete at this level. Well, sure enough, we played Leeds and we hammered them. We beat them by 30 points. It was the greatest moment of my uh, sports life, at least in basketball. And uh, it was interesting how he used that win, that objective reality, to anchor us with every opponent that we face. He said, now I want you to know, this team you're about to play, Leeds High School has already beaten them. Leeds. Or he would say, I want you to know that this team can't hold a candle to Leeds High School. It was this objective reality that anchored us when we went into these games, gave us confidence, and it changed the way we viewed ourselves. Now that's the gospel narrative. The gospel narrative changes the way you view yourself. You see, every one of us has a narrative that we think about ourselves, a story that is played out in our heads. The gospel changes that narrative. Now one uh, writer and preacher that I think so much of is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the book Spiritual Depression. And listen to the words that he says and how the gospel is to change the way we think about ourselves. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? You take those thoughts that come into your mind and for that moment, you begin to believe what you're hearing. You've originated them and they're talking to you. And they bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking and you're talking. And what are you saying? You're saying, I'm a failure. You're saying, I'm fearful. You're saying, I lack confidence. You're saying, I lack hopefulness. The gospel always instructs believers to talk truth to their hearts. When your soul is depressed, you stand up to your soul and you say, Soul, listen for a minute. I will speak to you. I belong to God. I am not hopeless. My life is not hopeless. My future is not hopeless. Just like verse 4 says, at the right time, God appeared. And when you say, but God, and he has saved me, everything about your hopelessness changes. Or I'll ask you today, 
What narrative are you listening to? What story is shaping who you are and who are you are becoming? I hope Advent this uh, year is a time for you to go on a spiritual pilgrimage and to think about hope and to think about peace and to think about love and to think about joy. And are you living in the gospel narrative and shaping you living in a idolatrous story? Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices and yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Let's pray together. What a story. What an opportunity, Father, to once again be reminded we're not alone in this world. We have strength that comes from outside of ourselves. We have hope because hope has found us from the future. And hope is eternal. It will carry us to our eternal home. Father, for those that are discouraged or live in guilt or anxiety about the future, would you remind them they have permission to hope in you? And for those, Father, that are here that do not know the love of Christ, would you appear to them the same way that you've appeared to us? Would your light shine in their heart and give them the desire as well as the trust to believe in Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.